You're listening to the Future Tech Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Future technologies such as artificial intelligence, stem cells, 3D printing, gene editing, Bitcoin, blockchain, the microbiome, quantum computing, virtual reality, and exploring space are much closer than you might think. In fact, many early versions of these technologies are in play right now, and the companies that are using these technologies are the focus of this podcast. My goal for you, the listener, is to learn from these podcasts. You may very well learn something that may change the course of your life for the better, steer you towards a new career, or give you insight into addressing a thorny medical problem. Remember, this podcast and its content is informational in nature only. No medical, tax, legal, financial, or psychological advice is being given. If you've enjoyed the podcast, please listen, subscribe, like, and tell your friends about it. Thank you. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Future Tech Podcast. I have uh, Bo Jarvis, the CEO of uh, Phase 4. We're going to be talking about uh, new developments in space exploration. So, Bo, thanks for coming. Yeah, good to be with you, Richard. Tell me a little bit about uh, Phase 4. What's the... uh, what are the first three phases and you know, where did the name come from and what's the premise of the company? Yeah, it's a bit of a plan word. So uh, really the reason why we call the company Phase 4 is that we, we build propulsion systems for satellites that generate propulsion by creating plasma. And of course, for, for those of the, those in your audience that may have had uh, rudimentary physics, they may have heard that there are four phases of matter, uh, right? You've got your gas, your liquid, your solid. Uh, but I think most of us, myself included, up until recently, didn't really think about plasma. So plasma is is the fourth state of matter. Uh, and that's what we use to create satellite engines effectively. Yeah, why would plasma be a, how is it used in propulsion? Yeah, if you take a step back, there's generally two types of propulsion. And most folks are familiar with what we call chemical propulsion. So that's the the fiery uh, type of propulsion that you see coming out of the back end of a rocket as it's launched from Earth uh, to deliver things into space. Uh, but the other type of propulsion is called electric propulsion, and that's more commonly used or pretty much all, only used in space. Uh, that is used where you take a, a, a gas, uh, something like a noble gas like xenon or krypton or argon, uh, you excite that gas with um, electromagnetic waves. Uh, that gas then becomes highly ionized and turns into a plasma, and plasmas want to kind of move together. So you can direct the plasma uh, out of the back end of the propulsion system uh, by using uh, an electric or electromagnetic field, and then that allows your spacecraft to move around in orbit. Uh, in space. So it's it's a lower thrust, obviously, than you get with chemical propulsion. But when you're up in space, you don't have, you know, the pull of gravity as much as you do on Earth. And it's a much more efficient system. So it uses, think of it as a higher miles per gallon system than a, than a chemical propulsion system. You're creating charges, a charged gas, essentially, like a plasma. And then the charge separation in a field is what causes the propulsion. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so you you know typically if you you know I'm sure a lot of folks see a rocket and they see the physical nozzle of the chemical propulsion system. Uh, we actually use um, a, a magnetic nozzle, so basically directing those charged particles the the direction that we want the spacecraft to travel. So basically directing them at the back that makes the spacecraft move the opposite direction. How much more efficient is this method of propulsion? Like how you know if you compare it to other methods of propulsion. Uh, I don't know if you should say miles per gallon. There is no such thing, but what's the metric? Yeah, it's just, uh, it's, 
that talks about efficiency. Yeah, there's there's uh, a few metrics that people use, and generally it is you know thrust. That's basically the strength of propulsion. So obviously a a chemical rocket engine has much higher thrust than a electric satellite propulsion system does. Uh, but then there is uh, thrust thrust efficiency. Uh, that's so that's really how much. Um, how much thrust can you generate per unit of input? So it's either uh, electric power in uh, coupled with uh, the amount of propellant in. So it gets it gets fairly complicated pretty quickly, but generally the idea with a an electric propulsion system for a satellite is you want to have enough thrust to move something around, you know, uh, the way that it will meet your mission requirements. Uh, but you also want to have enough efficiency so that if your satellite let's say, you know, you need it to last five years or 10 years or 20 years, you need to have a high enough efficiency level so that your fuel that you've got on board your satellite lasts for the entirety of the mission. And what what is the fuel? What's the source of the fuel? Yeah, so traditionally uh, for large satellites, so the satellites that uh, a lot of us uh, probably don't think of oftentimes, but are, you know, when we're, when we're watching television or we're seeing, uh, you know, news broadcasts from the other side of the world, those traditionally, those have been what, what are called um, uh, geocomsat. So they're large telecommunication satellites that are in a geostationary orbit. Those typically, you know, are, are in orbit, uh, you know, 10, 15 or 20 years. And a lot of times they're using electric propulsion systems uh, with something called a Hall thruster that was actually developed in the 1950s, right in the middle of the Cold War, uh, was developed in the Soviet Union. And that takes uh, xenon, which is uh, one of the noble gases. So it's an uh, inert gas, so pretty safe to handle, uh, but can be a very, bit, very densely packed gas. And that is historically um, really the only fuel for electric satellite propulsion. Uh, really what we're doing differently is we're still able to generate a plasma uh, just like uh, legacy systems are, but we can use any neutral gas input. So we can use xenon. Uh, we can use really any noble gas, so argon or krypton, but we can also use novel propellants, things like water vapor, things like air, things like methane. And that's where it gets really interesting from a you know infrastructure and space standpoint. Right. So rather than carry an earthbound fuel like xenon all the way out to the moon, if you're trying to build communications infrastructure around the moon, for example, or further out something around Mars, uh, you can actually use locally available fuels to power your infrastructure. And that could be, you know, water vapor for uh, spacecraft around the moon. That could be methane for spacecraft around Mars. So that's really the major difference between legacy electric propulsion and what phase four is building is the agnosticism to fuel inputs. Is there uh, just too few particles in space in most places to be able to use that as a fuel? I mean, it's, you know, it's called vacuum, but, uh, you know, there are clouds of, uh, of gas that are, you know, in the way of, uh, you know, an object's journey that it could use in harvest, or is that too way out? Yeah, um, that, that's probably a little bit further out there. I don't think it's outside of the realm of possibility. I think more realistically what you're looking at is, uh, you know, things that are readily available. So once, let's say, you know, we flash forward a, f a few years and our friends at Blue Origin have built up some some level of colony on the moon, for example, you know, they could they could extract water vapor uh, from some of the ice trapped in the moon and, you know, bake basically make a fuel depot there uh, or on the Mars, the same thing, the Martian atmosphere, you know, has a lot of methane in it. Um, but I think further out, as you mentioned, there is this concept um, where you have something uh, called a harvester, 
uh, the spacecraft could basically be designed to take in a specific type of gas or really any gas, right, and convert that into fuel. Uh, that concept actually has been um, started to be uh, developed in uh, with the European Space Agency, uh, not necessarily for deep space missions, but for very low altitude missions. So if you're if you're uh, at what we call in a very low Earth orbit, that's you know anywhere from like two to three hundred kilometers above the Earth. Uh, you can orbit there, but the problem is, is gravity is, you know, has a stronger pull there. So if you're orbiting there, your satellite comes down very, very quickly just because it gets pulled back into the atmosphere. Uh, but if there is a concept out there that if you had uh, something akin to a, a turbo, <laughs> basically something that allowed you to suck in air and you had a propulsion system that could convert that air into uh plasma, like an electric propulsion system traditionally does, then you could effectively orbit as long as you wanted, right? Because you, there's an unlimited supply of things like nitrogen uh, at, at that uh, level of the atmosphere. So that concept exists. Uh, you know, again, there hasn't really been a technology up to this point uh, that has been able to leverage, uh, you know, different types of inputs to create thrust. So that's, that's something that we're actually quite excited about. Yeah, I, w I wonder if, um, you know, if you had a... Uh... Well, this could work for other planets too, or I guess the moon, you know, if, um, if you could make it such that, um, you know, the craft wouldn't have to land, but could go to a lower orbit, you know, use the, uh, the planet's gravity or the object's gravity to pull it into a lower orbit where there was enough of some material, methane or whatever it was, harvest that and then leave the planet with that extra fuel without having to land. That might be an uh, you know, interesting way to do things. Yeah, exactly. Uh, you know, I think obviously that there's some <laughs> there's some technology that has to be developed to get to that point. But it, again, I don't think it's out of the realm of the possibility. And, you know, one of the exciting things of, uh, you know, what's going on in space right now is that I think really over the next decade, you'll see a lot of these things that most of us thought was, you know, purely science fiction start to take shape and come to reality. So that's, uh, it. you know, if you're interested in space, it's about as exciting as it, as it can be in terms of time. Well, what are some of those things? What do you see that's coming in the uh, in the near future, you know, five, ten years? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think if you if you look at just uh, you know over the next let's say you know five to ten years, um, and we actually we just stick on Earth for a moment. I think some of the really interesting things uh, that will require lots of revolutions in technology. So I think that's where we'll see lots of things change very quickly. Are in uh, something called these mega constellations, and that that's a term. Uh, that has gone to uh, that has been developed to to describe constellations of satellites that number in the hundreds or in some cases in the thousands. And really, what you're starting to see is new companies. If you've ever heard of a company called OneWeb, or existing space companies like SpaceX, their concept of basically having uh, space delivered internet for the entire planet. So basically, no matter where you are in the planet you could get the internet. Now, there's, obviously, there's probably debates on, as to whether that's a good or a bad thing, but really uh, essentially developing these large constellations that orbit the Earth uh, that bring telecommunications down very, very close, so you have lower latency and much broader coverage. Uh, and you're actually starting to see larger telecommunications companies uh, look at that and think about, okay, rather than one very large school bus-sized satellite that sits in geostationary orbit for 20-plus years, we could build hundreds of satellites that orbit much closer to the Earth and replace them every four to six years. Therefore, we're not going to get left behind from a technological perspective. Um, so you're, you're basically going to see uh, effectively mass manufacturing of satellites start to take shape uh, as soon as this year. 
uh, and then what that means for other parts of the infrastructure that has to go in place, you know, that that's why we exist, right? Is we represent something that can be manufactured at scale, uh, and and again, that can use various types of fuels to power different satellites. So that's one of the things that I think uh, maybe a lot of you know, kind of your layperson that's not in the space industry might not be aware of, but that is that is happening right now. That we'll start to see hundreds of satellites launched on an annual basis. Um, Really, if you look at now, I think the last I saw, uh, you know, the number of objects orbiting the Earth in low Earth orbit, I think is around 1,700, if I'm not mistaken. Um, but just the number of licenses that have been granted to companies like SpaceX and OneWeb over the next decade, you're going to see about 20,000 satellites being launched and orbiting the Earth. So we're looking, you know, at such a step change in terms of things going up and things orbiting the Earth. And then if you start to look, you know, out beyond there, beyond the earth you know you see you know people talking about how do we develop this lunar gateway how do we get, you know how do we get a, a spacecraft to mars and then get it back again and what does that mean for you know infrastructure between the earth and mars so i think a lot of the enabling technologies you'll start to see uh, are going to be pretty interesting uh, just to see how that plays out and i think the compressed time horizons from you know thinking this is going to take 20 or 30 years to happen, is things is probably going to happen at a much faster pace than a lot of us are used to. So those are those are types of things I'm interested in seeing. Well, what's the thinking? What's the purpose of having uh, you know normal transit between us and the moon or us and Mars? You know, I, I think there's there's you know from a scientific standpoint, uh, you know, there's probably a lot of knowledge that's locked up, you know, between here and the moon and here and the Mars that we just don't know about. Um, things that, you know, things that could enable deeper space exploration. Uh, you know, I think there is that inherent, um, you know, need to explore and need to discover. That is, you know, something that if you look throughout history, that's just, you know, why did you have all these people kind of sailing around the ocean? And um, yes, there are economic incentives, of course, but I think there's also really interesting scientific questions um, that can be answered by doing more research into space. And then I think, you know, there is the, the you know, there is the Probably, uh, in my opinion, there's some debate as to, you know, is there purely a commercial reason uh, to go all the way out to Mars? Uh, and if you look at it from a, you know, maybe a purely commercial standpoint, and, you know, there's probably, uh, you know, precious minerals, uh, those types of things that uh, exist in space at quantities uh, much greater than they exist on Earth. So, you know, even at, even at that basic level, there's probably some justification from a commercial standpoint there. So your goal is to, uh... I mean, where where do you want to make an impact with propulsion? You said you you want to be able to have your system robust enough that it can use multiple different uh, inputs, um, you know, such as methane or water vapor or other stuff, all in one go. Or you know, where's the leverage yeah. that uh, you're working on? Yeah, really, really, the vision we have for the company is that we we see a future in which all of the mobility in space. So basically, you know, any spacecraft uh, or satellite that's actively orbiting another uh, celestial body or providing some level of infrastructure in terms of communications or uh, observation, it is powered by phase four technology. And the reason we think that that's actually a realistic vision is, is the hallmarks of our technology is that it's fundamentally a much, much less expensive type of system to build. And the fact that, you know, we're not tied to a single propellant input makes it much more flexible. Uh, and again, that, that, can, that contributes over 
both to the lower cost, but also to the complexity in terms of uh, different types of, of missions that a satellite could could take using our technology. So for me, that's exciting. There's the you know there's the mass manufactured yeah. angle where we're going to have to support you know tens of thousands of satellites, but there's also the deep space or you know off Earth uh, exploration angle where you know we could you know we could be uh, the technology that's used to build, help build the infrastructure in deep space, and that's that's pretty exciting. Uh, quick question, you know, when you're when you leave Earth's orbit, you're headed, let's say, towards the moon. You know, you're in in space and vacuum, I guess they call it. Um, how much propulsion is needed? Do you need just a tiny bit, and the spacecraft will just keep going and going and going? Yeah, it's it's really, and, and I, I'm not a huge fan of these types of answers, but it's really uh, mission specific. So, what does that mean? You know, there are some satellites that they don't need to move terribly fast or terribly often. Uh, so they could have a, a low thrust system, uh, you know, with a small amount of propulsion because they don't really need to use it very much. Um, or, you know, there are satellites maybe that are, or probably this will become more, uh, increasingly more common, that are orbiting in the low Earth orbit where uh, they need to be able to move reasonably quickly because there's so much stuff <laughs> in the, in that orbit. Uh, so then you would, you know, they would need to look at a higher thrust system where they would probably use more fuel. Uh, so that could effectively shorten the lifetime of that particular satellite, or they would need to look at, you know, other technologies. Uh, you know, there, there's other concepts out there where you actually have a, a dual propulsion satellite. One is a, a chemical propulsion system, which basically is kind of like the emergency turbo boost <laughs> that gets you out of the way of something that's coming at you very quickly. And hopefully you don't have to use that very often, but if you're in a crowded orbit, you may have to use it. Uh, but then you have your your more efficient lower thrust electric propulsion system that lets you do you know the typical things that a satellite like that has to do like you know keep its orbit uh, the same as it as it goes around uh, maintain uh, maintain its position if it's in a network of satellites those types of things right but again in the uh, again going through uh, space between bodies you know here to the moon here to Mars etc. I mean, I guess, would you just need, again, a very tiny amount of propulsion if you were happy to go there slowly and steadily? Yeah, yeah, exactly. So there's, you know, there are some, some of the, um, you know, some of the, the scientific spacecraft that we've heard of, you know, like, um, you know, like Bepi Colombo um, and Marco, and more recently, uh, Hayabusa 2, which is a, you know, the uh, Japanese satellite that is exploring meteors. Um, most of those use uh, electric propulsion because you know they're they're not in a hurry necessarily to get someplace right, so they can take take a bit of time. Um, I would think on man on manned missions, you know, uh, for example, what SpaceX is building in their uh, Starship, uh, that the need is is basically to minimize the time, right? So they're they're building a very large spacecraft uh, with that can take a lot of fuel on board and get get someplace faster with a chemical propulsion system. So again, I think it, it goes back to you know what wanting to do. But if you're you know purely out there in in the cosmos most exploring and you, you just want your satellite, for example, to keep going and going and going, and you, you probably use a very highly efficient uh, propulsion system like an electric propulsion system. Okay. Well, very good. So what's the best way for uh, you know folks to learn more about phase four and uh, you know these times of, uh, I guess, initiatives in general? What, what do you recommend people do to learn more? 
Yeah, you know, I mean, we're we're in the process of of building our our first product, and we're going to make deliveries to our customers this summer. So we actually have a lot going on. Uh, we're pretty pretty uh, visible on social media, on on Twitter, on LinkedIn. So if people want to know specifically what Phase Four is doing, we're pretty easy to find. Um, I think generally speaking, if someone was interested in kind of all aspects of space, like commercial space, uh, you know, NASA related or government related missions, uh, you know, there's a lot of really good outlets out there. One that I I look at on a daily basis is Space News. Uh, you know, it has a pretty easy to easy to follow news feed, but it's it's very diverse. So if you're just someone who wants to know what's going on, both from a commercial and a scientific standpoint, that's probably a really good thing uh, place to visit and or to follow. Okay. Well, very good. Well, Bo, I appreciate you coming on the podcast. Thanks for being here. Yeah, good talking with you, Richard. Thanks a lot. You're listening to the Future Tech Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Future technologies such as artificial intelligence, stem cells, 3D printing, gene editing, Bitcoin, blockchain, the microbiome, quantum computing, virtual reality, and exploring space are much closer than you might think. In fact, many early versions of these technologies are in play right now, and the companies that are using these technologies are the focus of this podcast. My goal for you, the listener, is to learn from these podcasts. You may very well learn something that may change the course of your life for the better, steer you towards a new career, or give you insight into addressing a thorny medical problem. Remember, this podcast and its content is informational in nature only. No medical, tax, legal, financial, or psychological advice is being given. If you enjoyed the podcast, please listen, subscribe, like, and tell your friends about it. Thank you.